Welcome back to Is It On, the podcast where three lifelong friends discuss tech trends and news through a Canadian lens. We're really excited to bring you this two-part series where we discuss how a feature is brought to market from a product, engineering, DevOps, and security perspective. We found through our research that a lot of technical people, especially engineers and data scientists, have very little or almost no insight into the end-to-end lifecycle of a feature and how it's brought to market. So we really wanted to demystify this process at least a little bit for them. In the first installment, we discuss how product initiatives drive a feature from ideation to launch through OKRs. We also talk about how product discovery is done. And also there's a little update about our little furry friend Rococo for our loyal listeners. And in the next installment, we dive into the more technical details of a feature going to market, such as deployment and security. Let's get started. All right, so this week's episode, we're going to be talking about bringing a product or a feature to market, right? Um, and recently, Mustafa actually did bring a little product to market. So why don't we talk about that first? Yeah, so um, <laughs> for the last two months, I've been busy with a brand new product, uh, my baby boy, Milo. Um, he was born on July 5th. Um, it's, it's just been really busy since he's been around. Um, just imagine being on call and multiply that by a thousand. <laughs> I, Great I, yeah. perspective on having a child. <laughs> <laughs> no, no QA and your Jira board is just always full. <laughs> <laughs> They're all uh, SEV1 tickets, huh? They're all SEV1 tickets. <laughs> Worth 13. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, congrats, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel the pain. Um, Yes, it it gets slightly easier over time, but uh, yeah, never goes away. And you're on call for the rest of your life, so enjoy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, like, it's all fine. Um, But that's kind of why, like, for the last two months, we haven't had a podcast out. Um, We're all, we're all, it's, life, life is taken taking it up a notch the last two months so um, we're hoping to get back these podcasts a little bit more frequently now yeah yeah for sure so the the plan for this week's podcast is you know we're going to take a fictional well not fictional but a real feature but none of us has actually worked on it and then we'll just kind of walk through both from a or all from a product perspective devops infosec and engineering perspective of how we would all work together to kind of bring this thing to market right and as you know as overwatch geeks and as gamer geeks um we we picked twitch um or a specific feature on twitch uh, that we would like to bring to market so specifically um actually let me back off so uh the, what we want to talk about this week is uh the importance of product initiatives and how that drills down into specific features and OKRs uh, for a specific product or a feature, and then how that kind of drives the go-to-market and planning process for that specific feature. So uh, this week's episode, we're going to be talking about um, Twitch and bringing a specific feature of Twitch to market just because we are avid gamers, and uh, that's kind of how we relieve our stress and keep connected or stay connected. being adults now and not having as much time to spend together um, in person. So we all connect online through uh, Overwatch and uh, some other games. Um, So the specific feature in Twitch that we're going to be talking about um, from a product, DevOps, InfoSec, and engineering perspective 
is um, Twitch's uh, player perspective feature. So really what that means is um, if, if you watch any esports um, tournament, right? So say the Overwatch League or the League of Legends League, and I feel like we're going to lose a lot of uh, people here, <laughs> but generally it's, it's an online um, league where professional gamers play and compete with each other to win some kind of tournament or some kind of prize. And what Twitch brought out last year for the Overwatch League specifically was the ability to view each specific player's perspective individually, as opposed to being kind of constrained by the director's cut of the tournament or the game. Right, so we all thought that was really cool because Overwatch lets you play different um, roles, if you will. So as someone who plays tanks, I would prefer watching, say, the tank player's perspective instead of watching um, someone else, right? And same thing for if you're playing a damage character or a support character. Uh, so we all thought that was cool and that would be a good perspective or a good kind of um, feature to focus on. So whenever a feature or product is being brought to market, having some kind of structured thinking around it is critical, right? It's not like, hey, we want to become a feature factory and just let's build this thing out and ship it and cross our fingers and pray that it works. Um, so generally, I think at least in the recent um, kind of past few months or past couple of years, um, objectives and key results have been kind of the gold standard, at least in the software industry, um, for having some kind of structured thinking around um, these kind of product initiatives, right? So Bora, why don't you kind of outline what um, objectives and key results, key results are and how we can use that to kind of structure this discussion? Yeah, um, so essentially, um, when we're bringing a feature to market, uh, we, we want a structured framework to essentially be uh, that, the, that a feature is brought to market and then to create alignment and also like to be able to goal set and be able to measure the feature's performance in, um, uh, in the market. And so uh, within that, uh, so to, with, those, with those ideas in mind, um, there's the objectives and key results framework, uh, which you may have heard of as OKRs, uh, that, that essentially create like a framework for a company to be able to goal set and be able to measure the, uh, what do you call that, the, um, the goal progress to those goals through the key results. Um, objectives being the, being the high-level goals and key results being measurable outcomes that we want to measure for, uh, for any of those goals. So, so how does a product feature fit into that? So essentially, uh, by creating like very high-level company goals, um, you, kind of, you kind of create um, a, like, a North Star, like an alignment uh, pers uh, uh, point for the entire team from product to sales to marketing and down to engineering and DevOps, right? And in this context for Twitch uh, and specifically the Overwatch League uh, player perspective feature, um, the objective could be something like what Twitch would care about, which is like, um, uh, which is like you know, increasing interactivity with users on the video platform. Uh, by that, I mean users having more interactivity engagement with the platform increases revenue because you're able to convert their uh, actions into into buys and uh, you know subs and things like that that they have as features and um, and the key result here that we want to measure is converting users um, uh, you know uh, a percentage of users into buying a set feature 
in this case, buying into like it could be something like converting 10% of viewers into paying for player perspectives. You kind of want the key result here to be uh, something that's measurable uh, because that's the, um, so the key results, like once it's measurable, we can know, we can create initiatives essentially to drive those, those measurements. And this is where the product initiative comes into play. So the feature as talked about is player perspectives within the live esports game. In this context, like we're talking about uh, being able to see um, the, uh, the pro players playing a game from their point of view and not the director's point of view. And the initiative that we can, uh, the high level initiative that we can talk about here is bringing player perspectives to the live esports game and then having, the, and then the key result that we're measuring is converting viewers, 10% uh, of the viewers into paying for player perspectives, uh, essentially. So that's, uh, that's kind of the uh, framework that we want to uh, talk through today. Right. So yeah, like, and I think, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, like, for me, I'm in, I'm in DevOps, and like, so a lot of this, like, a lot of the context of what we're discussing here is probably is, is new to me. So, like, the first thing I like that popped into my head as a question is like, why would a company adopt an OKR methodology versus just bombarding the market with features? Yeah. So, the, so there's a few reasons for that. Uh, from my perspective, um, and OKR, method, OKR is just a way for setting, creating alignment within teams and being able to create a process through which goal setting can be done and uh, results can be measured. So, the, so beyond the technical definition, um, I, think it's, I think let's talk about like our personal uh, experiences too. Within mm -hmm. even like working on a feature, right? Uh, the best way to work on a feature, I would say as a developer, would be something we have our user stories that are that are already created. We have measurable like uh, you know features to deliver a design document that we've been following. A spec created, you know. I don't know how often this happens in in the <laughs> real world, but uh, we have those things. And then uh, because we can hammer out the features within our framework and care about stability and those things, uh, we build it to spec. We can measure the outcome of the feature when it goes out. But it's but that's a microcosm of the of the of the thing, right? But in a company, in a larger company, there's so many different hands and so many different like independent uh, uh, moving parts, right? So objectives and key, key results are essentially a very high-level way of aligning all of these teams to the same objectives, including um, so because, because the objectives are like very top level. So something like you know, in, increasing interactivity. In the case of Twitch here, we, we, are, we are saying that like, you know, it's increasing interactivity with users. You, you, can, you, can, you can take that from the marketing perspective. You can take that from the sales perspective. You can take that from the engineering perspective. They all have different perspectives, but they're looking at the same objective, like high-level objective. Would and each one of these teams have uh, uh, different key results or like different metrics that they would be interested in? Uh, yes. Uh, so you have like not necessarily different metrics always. Uh, sometimes the same metric can apply to all the different teams. For example, in converting 10% of viewers, marketing can also be involved in that number. It could be something like, you know, engineers are also involved in that number. But you, you might have like different key results, like, you know, 99.9% SLA is like, a, is like a key result of like you know, increasing stability, for example. And that's a very DevOpsy or like, you know, like engineering metric. So, so we, we don't just limit ourselves to one key result. Generally, an objective will have three to five uh, key results that you want Do to like from your experience, um, do AKRs ever like tie into team performance or like an individual performance? Absolutely, OKRs are the framework that everybody is measured against, um, and uh, in combination with an, a ladder system, if you have one, uh, 
You can use objectives and key results to measure not just uh, the team's performance, but also individual performance. And I think that framework, because of its like flexibility, can be can be extended all the way down to the from from the highest like objective like you know uh, like you know orga organizational level all the way down to um, uh, the individual uh, individuals goal setting and personal goals and key results that you have obtained so that you can also go on uh, that you can grow as a, as an individual within the company in the same framework. Okay, and then like for, I guess the. Um... For some for some reason, like like when I hear like everything is driven by numbers, you kind of think of like a dystopian society where like if you don't meet X, like there's no human factor. Like how do you add the the human elements in OKR so that it's like more humanized, so that it's not just uh, developer X. I don't know, didn't improve performance by ninety percent or something like that. Like it just becomes a checkbox of yes or you know, right? But like, is there is there a human element that you'd add to that or? I mean, by uh, by definition, objectives are human uh, in many ways, especially when it comes to personal goal setting. Now we're going into like you know, instead of product features, we're talking about like you know, an individual's growth. Um, it doesn't. So there's two ways that I generally do uh, a person individual growth. We use um, uh, obviously to keep you know, there's the emotional part of like being part of a team that makes you feel good. But I think a lot large part of that in in any organization, especially. Uh, in an engineering organization is the uh, is its achievement is the ability to uh, put stuff out feel good about what you're putting out creating faster cycles to put some stuff out and also creating a learning framework so you grow as an individual and you have a good team dynamic team dynamics also so dependent on that momentum because if you let's talk about overwatch again if you're in a losing team <laughs> it does not feel good you know i, I, I like Sometimes you see some not not, nece not necessarily like yeah. a losing team. It's like uh, like if you have a game and you're losing, but like you feel good about the output you're in that team. Like the team is working together. We're trying our best. Everybody understands. Like the next pe the people next year are trying their best. Like it's a good game. There's still that good feel element. But like if you're in a team and like the six of you all run into different directions, that's a very frustrating game. So right. in that in that case, like an objective and key results would definitely work, right? The objective being we run down the main tank, you know, <laughs> hack him with Sombra, and then <laughs> just to get into the game itself. And there then you the go. Key so being, last, we the last are five viewers right there. <laughs> <laughs> but but like that's exactly it. So if you think about it, like that that feel good factor is actually enhanced by OKRs. It's actually a very personal framework if you get down to the individual level as well. Um, it creates alignment. It makes you feel closer to your uh, your your uh, your teammates, and it makes you uh, generally closer to the company as well. And knowing that there are key results that everybody is like you know visible to, there's transparency, and and there's there there's like you know you know why something is working and something is not working. Right. Yeah. Transparency is big, and accountability is the other key factor there, because they're transparent. OKRs, everyone is held accountable to reaching those targets. Right. And it's not like the OKRs are just shoved down your throat. You have, like you work, typically you work with your manager and your team to agree on a set of OKRs. And then once everyone is cool with them, then you're, then you're like, okay, let's get this done kind of thing, right? Yeah. And it goes back to like the classic management uh, saying, what's it called? Uh, you can't manage what you don't measure or what you, yes. Or you don't measure what you can't manage. <laughs> but, you know, OKRs can also be done pretty badly. So uh, yeah. I wanted to give us a few examples of how it can be done in a way that doesn't really create alignment. Yeah, exactly. OKRs is one of those things like it's uh, if the input is bad, then output is going to be bad, right? So it's it's important to set OKRs that are 
relevant and that are measurable to your org. And I've been through situations where um, the OKRs were set just for the sake of creating OKRs and it, uh, the team wanted to jump on the bandwagon of OKRs. And ultimately what hap- ended up happening was we didn't spend enough time kind of thinking through and being critical about these objectives that were being set. And the objectives that ended up being put in place were number one, complete fluff. And number two, were completely unattainable. And so you have to be realistic when you set your OKRs too, right? It's not like, hey, if your current top line revenue is say, I don't know, 1.5 million, you're a young company, and then your revenue OKR or your sales OKR is like, hey, let's uh, reach a revenue of $7 million by the end of the year. Like, okay, at some point you have to be realistic too, right? And then if you set a shitty objective, then the key results that follow them are also going to be impossible to attain or shitty. And then that, going back to the human um, effect or human uh, element that you talked about, the team is going to be demotivated because they're going to be like, like shit, we're never going to meet are we even gonna achieve? Yeah, how are we going to hit this target? So I've, I've been through those situations as well where the key well, OKRs were just unrealistic. So um, that kind of, I guess, brings us to the interesting point of setting OKRs, right? And kind of tying it back to bringing this feature to market. It's very important to spend a lot of time uh, or, or at least being critical about setting your objectives because it's not an easy task. I think it's, um, or at least I don't know, I, I think it's easy to be dismissive and say like, oh yeah, it's easy to set OKRs or objectives because it's it's kind of clear what we need to do as a team and as a business. But I think it's very, very difficult to set objectives that are actually relevant to you, that are actually time-constrained and they're, that are measurable, right? So, um, yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. So unfortunately, in that specific situation in, in the team I was working in, it, what ended up happening was after about two or three months, um, the team just abandoned using the OKR system because it just wasn't working out and it it didn't really help guide the team to the North Star, like Bora said, right? Yeah, I really think OKRs are so dependent on on a company having a strategic North Star and a strategic play. Like somebody that understands the OKRs and, and, and like can guide the team towards that goal. But if you don't have... Like and strong, like like strong leadership is a bit of a fluffy word, but like strong leadership to me implies that like the entire team is looking for a, like a like a north star, like you're saying, right? Like, and that 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 guide towards that point. But like, if you don't have that, then it's just you're everybody's going <laughs> in six different directions, right? Um, exactly. And if you leave, so I've seen situations in my previous experiences as well where we wanted to set OKRs, and it was like done by the teams. It's like okay, so engineering set your OKR. And it doesn't work that way. It has to come, it actually has to work. Uh, it, it comes top down where like, you know, there's a company core, um, uh, you know, leadership uh, and also like just like strategy of the company and like its own growth that it needs to be set. A very clear objectives need to be set at, at, the, at the highest level. Uh, and then those objectives then trickle down and then, and then create like the alignment. It can't be done bottom up. It has to be top down in many ways from my perspective. I don't, um, as I think as the companies grow, I'm sure like teams can also set their own OKRs and things like that. But for smaller companies, especially, I think it's super prudent that everything is um, aligned 
uh, right. from the top. Right. So like that's so like if we were to tie this back into uh, product initiatives and um, I guess like the first thing that uh, from my perspective that I don't know much about is like where does a like how does a product initiative begin, right? Like like when we talk about um, the, the Twitch feature, right, with player perspective, um, how, how, like obviously we don't know how exactly that that, that feature went down, but like. Um, I would yeah. be right? If you yeah, no, I know, but like if you're to take a, a shot in the dark, like how how would uh wh- where would that idea come from to begin with? Um if I may say, if I may start this, um it's just uh the, the, the objectives come first. Like the company objectives, they come first, right? So within this framework, it's like okay, so if Twitch had this objective, say increase interactivity with the users on the video platform, now you have a framework to ideate against that ob- objective. Got it. Right? So so now, like we can talk about the ideation process. Um, uh, Nanti, how would you come up with this idea within this framework? Um, yeah, ideation is, I think, a few steps down. Uh, step number zero is understanding the problem, right? Like, what problem are you trying to solve, right? Uh, and kind of that ties back into what we were talking about in the previous episode. But let's say uh, the CEO or the whoever. Uh, leadership at Twitch was like, "Hey, we we need, we have a revenue mandate we want to hit this year, right?" And let's say they threw out a number of whatever X million dollars, and then as a PM, we would then take that back and be like, "Okay, uh, one of our uh, things that our data is showing us from the video um, interactivity feature is that users are not quite as engaged during esports events as we would like." Right, and whatever that might mean, whatever metric they might be tracking there, and then then the problem therein is that hey, users are not engaged. Then we would start the ideation um, of okay, how do we now kind of tackle this problem? And then uh, one of the solutions or part of the ideation is um, okay, why don't we let users interact uh, with the actual video stream and let them view specific player's perspective while the tournament is happening or while that esports game is happening, right? So that's step number zero is always kind of what is the problem space and why are we doing this? Um, And then as part of this discovery process, there's a bunch of things that kind of happen behind the scenes as well, which is um, it's funny that we're using Twitch as an example because Amazon kind of popularized this uh, framework. Amazon owns Twitch. so step number one is kind of what they call working backwards, right? So really, as a PM and as a product org, sitting down with your customers and your users and trying to understand their pain points and what their needs are and kind of empathizing with them, right? And I, I know this sounds really fluffy, but it's really important to like always have the customer or the user at the back of your head because if you don't and you're just going off of your gut feel or your gut instinct, it's a surefire way to just build and ship a shitty product or feature, right? Because you're not solving a real pain point for anyone. And as part of that, working backwards, uh, we start collecting data, both quantitative and qualitative. The quant- qualitative data could be just customer interviews or UX. Um, uh, or you, you tag along with your UX researcher and uh, perform customer interviews, user interviews. And then the quantitative side of things, um, you know, if, if your product is instrumented, you can start measuring, okay, what is the average time uh, 
a user is engaged during a live stream for an esports event, right? Let's say if it's two minutes, then how do we now try and increase that so that they spend more time on our platform and then potentially spend more money on our platform? Yeah. On the flip side, also, you can think of it as like people who are watching uh, the, the, the league game or like, you know, uh, like an esports game are heavily engaged. They are like, really, really engaged and they want to see everybody's perspective. How do we monetize that engagement as well? Right. It's like uh, two different angles that you can go from it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and on top of that, like, like when gamers stream outside of a league, it's always POV, right? Like there's that yeah. angle as well, right? Like, like it's, it's always POV in the other cases. So like it might make it easier when watching Overwatch League to just kind of provide that same look and feel i guess yeah and I, I think twitch's main revenue stream i guess is povs right like essentially exactly. it's converting povs into into twitch sub subscriptions which is like five dollar uh, pops to take 50 percent out of so mm -hmm. it's like how do we take that perspective to a game that is streamed in a, in a normal context in like say football which i know mustafa you really like i don't i mean i mean like the the one you play with the feet so <laughs> <laughs> actual football you know the real football it gives away our immigrant perspective, but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like in that game, you can't really have POVs, at least not right now, because the cameras are bulky and things like that. You can't really watch Messi play, you know what I mean? But in a video game, it's 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 one of the selling points. You can actually see the equivalent of Messi, like someone like you know in Overwatch, like someone like Jonak play Anna. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 that selling point as well, and that 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 ability to assume that player's perspective that I think. Uh, can be monetized and and then you can that tying that back into the objective is essentially key so now that we have like the idea you know like the, we we genesis of the idea came from all of these different perspectives we have the metrics driving it we also have the we also have like you know the fact that like twitch is you know built on povs and things like that like how do we take this idea and now convert it into a real product initiative so that um so that like you know we can start work on it yeah uh this is done through uh, what's called the product discovery Right. So when we have a new idea and we're trying to validate or vet that idea, um, as a product org or as a product manager, um, his or her job is to kind of figure out whether this initiative is or idea is worth pursuing. Right. And the way that's done is um, through four main steps, as I like to call it. And I stole this from uh, a guy called Marty Kagan, who's who's uh, a founder of something called the Silicon Valley Product Group, and it's pretty well-known um, approach to doing product discovery. So there's four key product risks that you want to kind of assess for this idea. So the first one is a, what they call the value risk, right? So this is figuring out whether users or customers will actually get value if and when we ship this feature out, right? And that is done and that risk is validated through many different uh, techniques. Um, so stuff like customer interviews, right? So just talk to them and see if uh, they're open to this idea or they're, yeah, whether they like this idea or not, right? And that kind of always gives you a good litmus test of whether um, this idea has some weight uh, to it. But then obviously comes the flip side where, you know, uh, user research or user interviews could be biased or your customers could be lying to you not on purpose, but just because they want to tell you what they think you want to hear, right? So you'll always have to take that with a grain of salt. Um, and then the second big risk after the value risk is the usability risk, which is, okay, once the users and customers figure out, yes, they want to uh, 
they will get value from using this thing. The second thing to figure out is whether they can actually use this thing out, right? And part of that process is putting together wireframes or prototypes, working with their design team, working with their engineering team to kind of figure out uh, what were the wireframes and prototypes we're putting together actually make sense. And then we'll present these wireframes to the customer or to the user and then kind of walk them through a usability test, right? Yeah. And just to like uh, add to that, like I remember how to bring it back to the feature we're talking about, which is uh, you know the player perspectives. I remember during Overwatch World Cup in 2018 or 2017, I believe I think it's 2018. Uh, they actually like did a beta of this feature within the Overwatch client, and there was so much engagement just by oh, right. like you know seeing the, the the players. So the next year when the Overwatch League started, they added the feature into Twitch and monetized it. So that's an example of how you could take a wireframing sort of approach, um, right? To the uh, to, to get like player perspective, like to get like you know data to work with. Yeah, that's that was almost like the MVP that they did. And the and by the way, a complete sidebar. Yes, there is a World Cup for esports. <laughs> <laughs> there is actually a global audience for people playing video games. Believe it or not. Hey, we went to uh, the uh, Overwatch League Grand Finals. Come on, like. We're... Yeah, yeah, we paid good money to go to Philadelphia last summer <laughs> to sit in the Wells Fargo Center to watch uh, twelve. Teenagers play a video game. <laughs> uh, okay, anyways, bringing back to the the product discovery, right? So we figured out the value risk. We figured out the usability risk. Um, the third thing is uh, the feasibility risk. So this is uh, whether we can actually build it from an engineering perspective, right? And this is when the engineering team or data science data science teams are heavily involved, and uh, the product manager's job is to work with them and kind of figure out whether. Uh, we have the bandwidth and the resources and the ability to build this from an engineering perspective. So is there uh, so some of the things to kind of figure out at this step in the product discovery is, do we have a lot of technical debt? Or is there some, some technical debt that's preventing us from building this feature out right now? Or, you know, yes, we can build it, but it's going to take us five months to build it because it's so complex yeah. from an engineering perspective, right? And, um, and for, uh, we're doing this in two parts. Uh this specific uh, podcast topic. And for the next part, we'll be actually uh, going in depth into how we you know, assess uh, engineering feasibility and bring it to market eventually, for specifically this feature. Yeah. Yeah. And so now we figured out the first three risks. Yes, users find value in uh, using this uh, feature. Yes, they can figure out how to use it. Yes, we can build it from an engineering perspective. So the last thing that we have to figure out is uh, what we call the business risk, right? So given the first risks have been validated as a business and as a team, does it actually make sense for us to pursue this initiative right now? And that kind of ties it back to the OKRs, right? So let's say the mandate is to, um, I don't know, reduce churn for that quarter, but then this initiative is more focused on increasing engagement and increasing revenue. Then maybe as a product initiative, it doesn't make complete sense for us to do this right now. So we might have to put it in the backbencher. Or on the flip side, the mandate was to increase revenue and increase engagement. And this feature or this idea aligns with it. So yes, let's go ahead with it, right? So that kind of uh, decision-making happens um, as a final step in the discovery. And that whole process, I mean, it really depends, but it takes anywhere between a couple of days to a couple of weeks, depending on how large and complex that initiative or idea is. And then once the product discovery is done, um, that's when the MVP and the go-to-market um, activities begin, right? So this is when at least... So just out of like the product discovery, like what are 
is there like a like a set of documents that you kind of yeah leave yeah, that point. leave that phase with like what what are the the tangible outcome yeah tangible yeah yeah so this really varies because i mean product management is so different in every company and every team but um what i've done at least in in the recent past is come up with what i call a product memo right and this is directly from amazon um so the outcome of this discovery process is like a two to four page product memo which outlines the problem space what the problem is um what the description of the idea is um and hypothesis statement so if we were to launch this feature we think metric metric x will increase by y percent or whatever that hypothesis statement looks like and then what the experiments look like to measure the hypothesis and test and validate them and then it's ended off typically by a faq right and the faq is really as a pm it's a way for us to critically think about all the questions that different stakeholders might throw at us about this initiative and preemptively write responses to them, right? So, um, uh, I don't know, an example for this switch feature would be, let's say the head of marketing might be like, okay, how is this player perspective thing gonna help us increase uh, top line revenue, right? So preemptively think about the question, write a response to it in this document. And the goal is when we present this document in a meeting, when the question is asked, you can be like, hey, refer to the FAQ, or you already have an answer prepared because you've thought about it, right? Um, so yeah, the, the, the real tangible outcome of the discovery process is a two to four, four page um, kind of product memo. The Amazon calls it their six page memo, but um, I don't know, it, it really depends from team to team. Make sense? Yeah, and and just like who's the audience for that product memo? Like I, I can imagine it's a confidential document at a to a certain point, or not really. Uh, it's definitely internal facing. Um, the audience would be your internal stakeholders, right? So sales, marketing, engineering. Okay. Yeah, DevOps. Uh, so data science. we like we we've mentioned engineering a few times. Like, what's uh, at a product discovery level? What's a uh, What's engineering's contribution to this point? It's just hypothetical, right? They're well, they're well hypothetical in the sense that they're not writing any code, code. but they're very yeah. involved. Got it. Okay. Generally, um, it's, it's feasibility um, research, and uh, specifically around uh, a lot of it is like you'd bring in like your um, generally like you know your architect level uh, engineers or like you know so that sort of uh, or like senior engineers in uh, that can lead this feature. You would you would brief them of it. You would get a feasibility sort of like you know we talked about a third part, which is the uh, I think remember what was in product discovery. It was the um, usability, feasibility, value, and business. Yeah. And that's where you would rope in your engineering team, and essentially they would do like a feasibility um, uh, analysis of the whole thing, uh, just so we know that there's a feature that can be built. And and like you know, like timelines are like a faux pas thing. It's it never works <laughs> out the way you think. Um, but generally, like complexity is something that we do uh, comment on. Yeah. So, is and there I, like a a dollar value that's assigned to what this product initiative would cost internally, or that's also a bit of a faux pas as well? There is general forecasting of what features are going to cost to build, um, and that's where like uh, you know engineering is a part of that as well. Um, but you know, it really depends on. Um, I think I think I think it really depends on competing priorities as well. 
uh, there's a lot of uh, complexity to like you know something being built. But that said, yes, there is a cost yeah. aspect to it, like a high level cost. Cost and benefit too, right? So as one of the things as part of the discovery process too, is I do a, a revenue projection, and with that comes the cost. But again, this is I do that only for big initiatives. If we're like I don't know if we're shipping a small feature, uh, I'm not going to do a revenue projection. Yeah, like features depend, right? Like there are features that launch entire revenue line revenue lines, and then there are features that are additions, so that like you know we keep competitive to the market, and then there are features yeah. to create a competitive edge. So there's right. a there's a few different uh, ways of looking at a feature, and um, and in this context, it's to create a new revenue line, right? Like we're talking about like a, a feature that people have to pay for on top of like watching the the game. So revenue projections and cost projections are imperative to like you know making a decision whether to make it or not. Uh, I mean, this this feature seems like a no-brainer to me because you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but like if you think about it, like you still have to do those uh, numbers. You still have to like you know analyze it. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And then the so we've done the discovery, and then um, like I was saying, the the go to market and the MVP phase is is key, right? So because this is where we validated that yes, this idea is worth pursuing. Now let's figure out exactly what we need to build from a feature set perspective. And being brutally, um, the way I like to look at it is, is like being a murderer, right? Because you have to be really, really uh, brutal with your prioritization of what actually goes into the MVP and what we actually ship as the first iteration. Because it's yeah. easy to bloat your MVP with stuff you don't really need. Yeah. I actually, um, so coming from, so I actually have a really, real interest in like film, literature, music, and things like that. And one of the guiding principles that I've always worked with in my life is something that Faulkner said a long time ago. And he said, kill your darlings. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and if you take that perspective, you got to take that perspective to everything you do. Every time you think you're being clever or adding new things in frills, kill it. Yeah. You don't need it. <laughs> you should keep it terse and as clean and efficient as possible. And that's where, like, I think a lot of the uh, product manager's value comes from. And um, their ability to see what's actually needed and be able to discern that from all the things that we just did, discovery mm-hmm. process and and the metrics that we're collecting, and also being able to measure um, the MVP. Yeah, exactly. Given to an engineer, they would just keep building and building and building to uh, to like whichever feature uh, point that you want, right? It's about using uh, the engineering time effective uh, effectively because engineering is the high, biggest cost in the software company. Right. Yeah. So the way I approach an MVP or look at an MVP is what is the minimum set of functionality or features where we can start learning the most out of it once we put it um, or once we launch it in a, in a beta environment or whatever it may be. And also as part of that MVP go-to-market phase, we instrument the product, right? What are the metrics we want to start tracking? And is our analytics tools set up already or do we have to instrument this new feature to start collecting the data that we want to uh, start collecting so that we can validate against the hypothesis statement that we set out earlier, right? And yeah, so then uh, really the last phase of this, um, the, the, the launch or bringing to market is the iteration. So once we put something out in the real world, it's not, it's not like our work is done. Our work just started, right? So that's when we start collecting data, seeing how it's performing, and then um, running experiments uh, to validate our hypothesis and then iterating, 
So if our data is telling us something, then okay, let's tweak something and then relaunch it, iterate, iterate. And then at some point, so typically the way I've done this is at about the two or three week mark, you have a good idea of whether your hypothesis is being validated or not. And that's when you make the go or no go decision of whether we want to kill this thing off or let's hunker down on it and then um, bring it to maturity, right? This feature. Is that something you discuss in product discovery? Like at what point would you kill a feature off? Yeah, so that's the hypothesis statement, right? As part of the okay. product memo, um, the way um, a lot of product managers approach bringing a new feature to market is hypothesis-driven, right? So they come up with a hypothesis. So going back to the Twitch example, the hypothesis could be something like, um, we predict that user interactivity will increase by 10% um, by the end of Q4 2019. Right, and then that hypothesis statement is what they use as a litmus test to see whether yes, we're trending towards this hypothesis. Okay, at the end of week one, interactivity increased by six percent. End of week two, it increased by eight percent. Right, so we're trending towards it. Or the complete opposite would be nope, it has absolutely no effect at all on our interactivity. In fact, it's going down. Right, because people are, people cannot figure out how to use it. Right. So it's it's very complex or it can get very complex, but in general, the hypothesis statement is what kind of drives whether we think it's going to be successful or it's not. Yeah, it's the key result, right? Like objectives yeah. and key results. And I always think of product initiatives as being the, the vehicle that gets you from the high level objective to the key results you're trying to measure. So yeah. um, so the vehicles are like, all, or like the features that are driving those key results. So. Uh, in this case, like uh, that's just like when is the feature is released. But even before that, like a hypothesis can be vetted by just doing uh, uh, quick MVPs. In our context, for example, we were doing they did the MVP during the the the, the World Cup, right? Like through the client it was a low cost version of the way of doing this. And automatically, I remember there was huge engagement. I was watching the World Cup. I was watching uh, perspectives from on my other on my computer while I was like you know watching the stream. So it was like really fun. And yeah. I was uh, and then. Seeing that rolled out to a real feature within the same client, that was uh, that was great. So yeah, Blizzard, if you're listening to this, please go back to Twitch. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. YouTube hasn't been like the kindest <laughs> to, to the league. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of how it all goes. Yeah. So uh, I feel like we talked about a lot of things. So maybe a quick summary. Um, we started off with talking about OKRs and why they're good and why they can be bad. And we, uh, we, we started looking at things from the perspective of Twitch, specifically the player um, perspective tool, where in a live stream during an esports event, which is basically a competitive um, game tournament, uh, being able to switch between specific players' perspectives, right? As opposed to just being at the mercy of the director and uh, viewing it, viewing the perspective, of whatever uh, the director of the tournament um, sees fit. And yeah, we talked about the product discovery um, process, validating the four, four big product risks, which are value risk, usability, feasibility, and business risks. And then the MVP being brutal with your prioritization, killing your darlings, and then going to market with your um, MVP and then iterating once your feature is out in the real world. 
and then seeing what is working, what is not working, and then making that final go or no-go decision of, yes, we want to keep this feature in the real world or not in the real world. And underlying all of this, underlying all of this is the OKR framework that we always work uh, towards, right? So going back to Rococo, you know, our, our, our beloved raccoon uh, <laughs> that has been, has been, you know, has made, basically made my deck his home. And my objective <laughs> has, has honestly just been uh, getting him off here. So we clean up, I have to clean up his poo. And that's one of the, uh, like, and then I, the key result being, did he poo back again? <laughs> you know, and like, and I've been measuring that and like, you know, trying different things. I tried uh, ammonia, didn't really work. You know, now I'm going to, then I'm going to try cayenne pepper. That's like yeah. our measurements, you know, it's, it's everything in life. It comes down to OKRs, basically, even, <laughs> even getting rid of Rococo, who has not left yet. So I'm going to try coyote pee next. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Is It On? As discussed in the next installment of this two-part series, we'll be getting a bit more tactical. We'll be talking about some of the uh, processes involved around the engineering feasibility studies, as well as the design documents that surround the whole go-to-market process and the deployment process of a new feature. We're looking forward to having you back. Thank you so much.